You are listening to the PJ Performance Podcast with your hosts Paul and Jack. Today on the podcast, we have Chris Brennan. Chris is currently working at the Brisbane Lions as the Academy Strength and Conditioning Coordinator. Chris completed his Masters from the University of Queensland and since then has had roles within the physical performance sector at UQ Sport, Queensland Cricket and the Brisbane Lions. Chris is a vastly experienced coach and has worked with many different teams, individuals and age brackets. Similarly to the team at PJ Performance, Chris has a passion for long-term athletic development. This podcast is a great insight into the sports performance world and can be applied to people from different walks of life. If you are a parent wanting to understand what you can do to help your kids, an athlete who is interested in physical preparation and sports performance, a coach wanting to learn more about the intricacies of strength and conditioning, or even if you just have a general interest in sport, and make sure you give this a listen. Hey Chris, welcome to the podcast, mate. To start off with, can you just give us a bit of an overview of your time in the S&C field so far? Uh, thanks, Jack, and, and uh, thanks, Paul, for having me on. Uh, it's a you know, really uh, exciting thing that you guys have got going. Uh, as far as career for me, I, uh, I've been lucky enough to be in the industry for the past 10 years or coming up to 10 years. Um, and yeah, as you touched on there, I've had a, a number of different roles in that time. Uh, originally, I, I grew up as a, a kid in a, in a small town called Stanthorpe in Queensland, about 5,000 people, and uh, loved, always loved playing sport. As a kid, I wanted to be an athlete. My, my two sports were probably cricket and soccer, the, the two I was all right at. But uh, I think my ambition certainly probably outweighed uh, my skill or talent level. So I learned pretty quickly that that probably wasn't going to be a reality. Um, and so I switched my thinking to I wanted to, to be a sports physio. So looked into different routes of study and whatnot and um, sort of at, once I finished school, I was fortunate enough to get into uh, a Bachelor of Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Queensland. So I went there. My plan was to study study that and then sort of uh, post that, do a Master's in Sports Physio. But about midway through uh, my degree there, I met a guy named Vince Kelly and uh, he spoke about, he did a lecture on what s was. And from that moment on, I, I was just hooked. I, I knew I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so I sort of probably tested him a fair bit and for any opportunity I could get, um, managed to do my prac with him and started working for him at UQ Sport where we worked with a, a mixture of team sport and also uh, individual athletes across a number of different sports at, at state and national level. So got exposure to working in rugby league, netball, rowing, rugby, cricket, plenty of different sports, a bit of swimming. Um, and so that, that was a really good uh, opportunity for me, an introduction into some S&C for me there. I was lucky enough in 2011 to um, that the Lions Academy just formed and they advertised for an S&C coach. So I applied for that and was fortunate enough to get the position. Um, and, and there I sort of really got stuck in and sunk my teeth into that role for about four years. Uh, it's actually where I first met Jack um, as an athlete. And, um, yeah, really had a, had a great time learning my craft there and, and training the, that group of guys. Um, I was also fortunate enough to do a bit of an internship the senior team at the time there at the Lions in 2012 and sort of that got my sort of thoughts um, looking at some study. So I, I did a bit of uh, study initially, supposed to be a PhD in, in anti-gravity running or uh, Alter-G treadmill and um, I think over time that progressed to being a Masters um, and that sort of, it started the Lions sort of progressed to doing some work at Queensland Cricket where initially I started out as a volunteer under a guy named Damien Mendes who I was really fortunate that I was keen and interested to learn and then he, he sort of gave me an opportunity to be around him and, and I learned a lot from him and, and picked up a lot of things. Um, and that sort of my time there, it, it sort of evolved from being a volunteer into, uh, you know, a casual worker or part-time and then eventually a full-time uh, role, which was I was really fortunate for. So that, that's sort of my progression there uh, over seven years where I was, yeah, initially started working with the male team 
and did a fair bit in the pathways and then an opportunity came up with the women's program and again I, I really just saw that as a great opportunity to get stuck in and, and had seven wonderful years there at Queensland Cricket um, and then about mid last year the Lions advertised for this new academy role um, and it was sort of for me it was a bit of an itch that uh, that I, I wanted to explore a bit further and and I, I kind of was wanting to get back into the football space so again applied and, and was fortunate enough to get the role um, and, and it's been a wonderful six months that I've had there so far working at the club uh, it's been a really good pre-season and, and been really exciting um, sort of my role there I'm the academy strength and conditioning coordinator where probably about 70% of my role was sort of leading and, and delivering the program to our uh, academy squad or academy squads. Uh, we have five main age groups of that where it's sort of from under 13 to under 18 in a male space. And then we have uh, two squads. We have that under 16, under 18 female. So really lucky to um, be able to work with them. And, and I'm super fortunate that I've got a team of, of uh, six part-time SNC or casual coaches that, that work across all those different programs. It's certainly not just me working with all those squads. They sort of really help me um, deliver the programs and, and provide some direction with that, which is great. I've also had had a handful of students and Jack was one of those. Um, and, that, and that's also been great for me to have experience working with those guys. Uh, as far as a senior role, I do help uh, with the senior program. I get to write the, the strength programs for the first years and be involved in that space and coaching the gym floor for the, for the senior session. So that's an awesome experience where I get to learn from three other strength and conditioning coaches there. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's just it's been an awesome opportunity to engage, learn and be mentored by some really great people. So that's, uh, that's my career in a snapshot. That's a, that's a great introduction, mate. And like, like Jack said, we're very lucky to have you on, someone who's been involved in, you know, a lot of different sport. And I know from when we've had conversations, just getting your hand, you know, involved in a lot of different things, you know, you never know what's going to come of it. And that's something that I've definitely taken into my career as well. So thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Obviously, I've got a pretty different relationship to um, yourself as Jack has, obviously not in the athlete sense, um, as much as I would have liked that to be at Queensland <laughs> Cricket. But, um, yeah, I obviously came to you when we were starting Cricket Academy Acceleration and just to get a little bit of guidance and spend some time at Queensland Cricket just watching the way you ran your session. So I really appreciate the time that you've given me there. Uh, my first question, mate, obviously with you being involved with the Bulls, the Lions and at UQ, how do you go about building a rapport as a performance coach with different athletes from different age brackets, different sports and different genders? Uh, yeah, look, that's a, that's a really great question, Paul. Um, look, I think the first thing is that, look, there's always going to be subtle differences between different ages and genders and different sports. But I think it's really, it's ultimately a pretty organic thing. And I think it's about firstly showing them uh, that you're interested in them and the sport that they play and you're interested in what they do um, and I think it'll depend on the context as far as where you brought in whether it's it's sort of a, a quite a junior role or whether it's a more senior role but certainly if it's in a junior sense you, you really got to show your colleagues and and the the athletes that you're willing to learn and improve and learn more about them learn about the sport and you're there to sort of make yourself better as much as them um, and I think you've got to be willing to have fair and honest conversations with people and be really genuine. I think when it comes to working with athletes of different age groups, certainly like there will be differing coaching styles. You know, there's no secret that with younger athletes, most people's coaching style is probably going to be a bit more directive because it, it, you might be dealing with larger groups or it's just sort of it leans towards that because you've got a, a younger group of athletes who may not have as much education um, and certainly need to be directed in a certain sense. Over time, potentially, like I know in my experiences, obviously when I first started at cricket, um, wasn't I wouldn't say I was a, a raw coach in, in any sense, but certainly it was a it was a younger group, and so my my style there was quite directive initially. But certainly, as as those athletes matured and I matured, um, I think my style became a little bit more autonomous, and and the athlete was certain athletes were starting to get a bit more input into their program or we would have conversations. Um, I think if you listen to the work of Simon Thomas, he speaks uh, quite extensively about that. He's from the Crusaders and he speaks a bit about, about yeah, uh, different coaching styles and in that sense with, with players as they progress. Um, but, yeah, I think it's really – it all comes down to the trust that you can develop with that player. Um, and then, you know, gender is an interesting one. Um, I've had coaches that really push – that, that 
there are differences and I've had coaches that say there are no differences. Uh, I'm probably on the fence, I think, from my experiences. Males will, will really tolerate firm direction um, and probably do things quite routinely before even asking why. So certainly, like, you could bring in a new system of doing something, say this is what we're going to do, and guys will probably more than likely just get stuck in and do it and they'll do it quite well and then at a certain period of time they might start to ask why are we doing it even though they've been doing it for a year or more. Whereas in a female sense, they typically uh, are probably a little bit uh, more exploratory and they, they want to know um, a bit more, they want to know answers probably a bit sooner and, and, and like to question why they're doing stuff. And it's not it's not coming from a bad place, it's more from uh, more a, a um, inquisitive sort of nature and they, they want to know why they're doing things and certainly I think if you can provide some good education and, and sort of take them on that journey, it, it's a great way of creating buy-in in that space. Um, so that, that's probably my experiences but in saying all of that, I do think at the end of the day um, they're athletes nonetheless and if they want to be, if you want to have your group be a professional group, you've got to set a high standard and demand a high standard um, and I think that's probably becoming more pernient as the gender pay gap sort of is shifting and starting to become more equal. Yeah, Chris, I think that's some really um, interesting information that you give us and you kind of touched on talking to different age groups and how you deal with um, different people in that sense. I mean, sometimes the things that I notice is once you get to that really high level and you've got a player that's been involved in a sport for 10 plus years, they think they know exactly what they should be doing for their body and whatnot. Is there any way you can go about talking to them if you get some, I guess, backlash about advice you may give them or a program that you might give them? How do you go about working around that and dealing with the athlete? Uh, yeah, look, that's a good question, Jack. I, th- I think it is. It, it does come down to that trust, and um, you know, in, in that certain scenario, I certainly, uh, I've probably, I have had experiences of that where you know, um, people, uh, you know, as people change, uh, you know, as circumstances change, their mood may change. At the end of the day, they're, they're people. Their athletes are still people, and, and they have a right to question different things at different times. Um, I suppose it's one about trying to educate them. And I think that the one of the greatest uh, bits of advice I got from my former mentor at Queensland Cricket, Paul Chapman, was um, about being, you know, a stable, constant stable base. If you're always there in a constant stable environment, if you have, have an athlete that may sort of change views consistently with sort of the flavour of the month, if you're there and you're that consistent stable base, at some point they'll come to you as that rock. And I've certainly seen that in different examples, um, both like sort of, secondhand but also firsthand so I think yeah if, if you can be consistent genuine and stable with them I think that's the best way of sort of maneuvering at what at times can be rocky seas yeah I think that's some really good information Chris and Paul and I were just talking off air here and he just goes to me that's some absolutely like incredible advice and I completely agree and I, I think something that I found with you is you know you're always a very um, approachable person, someone that you can talk to. And I found that really helpful throughout my career. And, you know, when I talk to you or ask you different questions, you always have some evidence and some reasoning behind it. So I think as an SNC coach, that's something really important. Paul, Paul. What now, Jack? You're forgetting something, mate. What do you want about? The podcast sponsors. Oh, silly me. You are listening to the PJ Performance Podcast, sponsored by Acceleration, enhancing sports performance, and Acceleware, a professional management system for coaches and managers. That's better, Paul. I guess just shifting gears a bit now and and talking about our youth and and developing them, I think that's one thing that Paul and I really... um, interested in is is helping people when they're younger be able to move better and sprint better and and obviously help their athletic performance um and it's probably one of the reasons that we started off pj performance so i guess you've had a lot of experience working with um younger athletes in terms of um, the lions academy and also through the development pathways at qc could you talk to us a little bit about long-term athlete development and why it's so important yeah, look, I mean, for me, I think it's just 
um, it's really about just building that stable base um, as early as possible. The more exposures we can have to good movement patterns, I think the better foundation we can develop and so the higher an athlete's potential can be. Um, so, yeah, for me, it, it's just it, it's massive and it is something I'm certainly very passionate about. I enjoy, um, you know, because I think athletes, whatever, no matter what age, they always come through with different movement complexities and, and different expressions and, and it's about trying to sort of solve those movement puzzles and I find that um, certainly very uh, enjoyable and, and something I am passionate about. Not to say I have an answer to every single problem, but there's still things that you see um, today that I, I say, you know, I wonder is am I on the right track or whatever, but I think certainly try to use a breadth of uh, resources that are out there, podcasts, research, um, you know, Again, linking it back to some key frameworks, you've obviously got um, some the wonderful stuff that on the LTAD model done by, I think it was Ivan Bally. Um, and then there's also the youth physical development model. So there's some there's fantastic resources out there to really sort of use and guide. And then um, then it's really about just trying to engage with it and, and be patient, I think, is the big thing uh, because we, a, a person's career as an athlete it's a long generally a long time so there's certainly time to um, improve all aspects it's just be, about being patient and sticking to um, what you believe in but and also I think um, yeah using those frameworks to really guide your progression yeah and I think um, when we when we talk about LTAD obviously in my in my field of work as a head performance coach at Acceleration, we deal with, um, you know, a lot of young athletes and getting phone calls on the, on the daily basis saying, you know, is it too young for my kid to be here and, and you know, doing this stuff in the gym and doing this sort of movement work? And I know I certainly have my, my own opinion on that, but what are your thoughts on the stigma behind the how young is too young question? Yeah, look, it's, a, again, a good question. Uh, look, uh, personally, I really don't think it's um, ever too young to start ingraining and teaching key fundamental movement patterns um, and progressing from there. I'm not saying load it from day one. I'm saying teach it from day one. So, you know, the, the things that and I'm going to sound a bit like Kelvin Giles here, but the, what he preaches, the, the squat, lunge, push, pull, hinge, carry, brace, um, skip, run, jump, hop, all that stuff, as much of that as we can ingrain into, into kids um, whenever they come to you and sort of, you know, try and develop that wide base of, of movement competency or physical literacy, whatever you want to call it, I think that's that's really important. And then once they're, you know, progressing forward and um, certainly your different growth and maturation periods give you a good guide as to when it's appropriate to start loading. And, and obviously, again, individual athletes will show differences at times, so it's about looking at what's in front of you and trusting your instincts and also again using those resources that are out there and using the science that's available to us to say all right well now is an appropriate time to, to start to load and start to progress this person now's the time to pull back because what we're seeing is, is indicative of this person's not capable or not progressing they're regressing at this stage so now's the time to to sort of pull the brakes on a bit and focus back on that movement and that flexibility and mobility try and get them to progress forward in the future. Oh, I couldn't agree more, mate. And um, even with us, we do some video analysis on on running technique. And, you know, you you see them over the course of five, ten years with some of the athletes that we have and um, even the changes in strength and stability, even mobility, like you said, and just changing, you know, just basic running mechanics and deceleration mechanics and what it can do. So, um, yeah, very much on the same page there. And talking about the sort of growing and maturation period, and I know you've done a, a bit of research on the peak high velocity and injury risks. Um, in a practical setting, how do we go about recognising the onset and monitoring and changing loads in relation to these topics? Yeah, look, I think there's some really great stuff out there um, in the research. When I say I haven't researched it personally as far as, you know, done papers and things like that, but I've certainly it's been a keen interest for me. So I've certainly spent a lot of time trying to read up on as much as I can about it, particularly now moving back into sort of the youth space. Um, some good resources I've probably lent towards 
James Baker from Aspire puts out some good stuff. Um, the guys at the Arsenal Academy have some wonderful stuff. Um, so looking at that out there, there's certainly different models and, and, and different equations out there you can use. Um, the simplest one I think that we've tried to start to implement um, at the Lions Academy has been um, just trying to, to measure height and weight regularly, um, just those two simplest ones and be as consistent as possible. When I say regularly, initially we started out probably we were trying to do it monthly. It probably wasn't happening that frequently, um, more like every two months. I think if you read and look at the literature, it probably says to, to be accurate, it needs to be around three to four times a year to be able to track peak height velocity and start to get an understanding of, of what stage, whether they're pre, during or post peak height velocity and whether they're then starting into that peak weight velocity period. Um, so that's probably the first thing. And then after that, I think um, it's really the, the changing loads perspective. It's it's about having the conversation with the player. It, if you've got the evidence in front of you that they are growing or they're changing in their body shape, um, having that discussion, yep, okay, I'm growing. Um, okay, how are you coping with it? What um, do they have, you know, the, the aches and pains or what are you observing from them? Is there a change in coordination? Um, speaking to their parents, flagging it with the coaching staff that you work with. I think a big thing working in S&C and probably oh, a, a period ago we may have peeped certain people and, and, and everyone's really been guilty of it, but we, we look to try and change sports or say you can't do this, you can't do that, and, and I think that probably um, – tainted us a little bit and, and put a bad taste in people's mouths. So I think now it's a little bit more about having conversations with coaches and showing that you're willing to pull back in your area. So, you know, in our case, we'd probably look to adjust the amount of and in, the amount and also intensity of conditioning that we're doing and what type of conditioning we're doing with that player. Is extra running going to be beneficial for them right now? Is it going to be more beneficial to do more work on their movement and their control, their balance um, in the gym? What loads are we typically prescribing? Are we going to? Can we adjust that to, um, you know, change the, the load and the stress that's on the body so that person's going to cope because they're already going through a period of stress because they are growing. So I think that's that's um, the, the avenue we're trying to go down and um, don't have lots of evidence yet because it's only a, a pretty new process. But um, I certainly think there's a lot of evidence out there and, and some good resources out there to try and guide people. Yeah, I think um, one interesting thing is uh, Paul just told me that he's still trying to reach peak, peak height velocity at some point in his life. So uh, <laughs> I'm with him there. So uh, don't worry about that, Paulie. Um, Chris, you touched on just having conversations with athletes and um, I think that that's really something that has come up as a bit of a theme in this conversation so far. And I actually listened to a podcast just recently with Solon Griffith, who uh, you obviously work with with the Lions and um, I guess the Lions have had an unbelievable um, injury-free run of late. And one of the things that he talked about was, I guess, using the data that you get, whether that be, um, you know, jump data, uh, norboard data, whatever it may be, um, but also just having conversations with the athletes. I guess, can you give us a bit of an, um, maybe an indication as to why the Lions have had such an injury-free run and what do you think that's down to in particular? Uh, yeah, look, I think it's uh, it's a number of things, Jack. I don't think it's um, one thing. I do certainly think the environment there and, and, and being a bit of a fly on the wall initially for the first few months and then sort of starting to get a bit more engaged in the space now, um, it's it's certainly, yeah, it is a number of things. They, they do have really good conversations with players um, and, and do check in with people and, and the environment, the culture there is really strong. Um, I think the way they've pushed players to train and players have sort of been educated. Um, like in the gym, there's certainly a lot of education that goes on pre-session and during the session around what we're doing, what zone we're lifting in this week as far as intensity and why, um, what, when we when we manipulate that to either bump it up or to pull it back for, for set reasons. Um, also around, you know, education around their training habits in off-season period at Christmas time, things like that, and and the importance of guys actually coming back into good shape because I think 
with any young group that can always be a challenge where guys see off season as a period just to rest and sure they're entitled to it after a hard season a a week or two of rest but after that point it's about getting your body going again and making sure that you're going to be in best physical shape to start that season I think that we've seen that's a big thing um, for for many groups so that's a massive one I I do think as well um, the monitoring data that, that they collect um, is, is excellent and, and the manner in which they do it as far as we kind of see a lot of our testing is, as something we try to do quite regularly every six to eight weeks um, and so that's ingrained into the actual training process so one day it might be Nordboard um, that's in, integrated as part of the gym session the next day it's they're going to be doing their CMJ um, and RSI the next day it could be mid-thigh pull um, they they do regular groin bar testing um, prior to their training sessions, things like that. So they've they've done a really good job at, at collecting a good base of data and doing it consistently. So it's really informing their practice. Um, I think that's a massive thing. And the other one I have noticed is even when a player is injured, um, they certainly they do as much as they can as soon as permissible. So uh, if a player is pulled out of training for a, a set complaint, it, the conversations had straight away between the physio, the SNC, and also um, coaching staff around, well, what can we get this guy doing straight away? Is it, can he do some low intensity running? Can he do some low intensity skill work? And so the player's not just removed completely um, from training, they're, they're still actually training and, and working. And so they're maintaining workloads, which is a massive thing. Um, and then same thing from a gym perspective, I know sales philosophy, and it's certainly something that, uh, that is, um, you know, I believe in as well is getting guys back into full movement in the gym as soon as possible. And it's as soon as permissible, really. You've got to respect the physio um, and the medical advice that you're getting, um, but also, you know, working to get this person back into full movement as soon as possible so that we can get them back as soon as possible. Yeah, Chris, I think one of the interesting things you touched on there was just building that rapport with players and talking to them. But obviously a well-periodized plan also goes into having an injury-free list and also helping the athlete to perform as well as they can. Um, I know that this is really one of your passions is how we periodize out a well-structured model throughout, you know, pre-season and in-season. Um, I guess for any SNC coach out there or someone wanting to know a bit more, can you talk to me about what kind of boxes we need to tick and, and how – one might go about planning out a pre-season and in-season, um, you know, for strength and conditioning? Yeah, great question, Jack. I will say, yeah, uh, 100% right, where I probably that was the one thing I uh, excluded from that talk around injuries is obviously the training plan, but I think we always, uh, from a, any perspective, we're always, that's, I suppose, something that we probably, we see as our bread and butter and work hard on trying to get right. Um, and, and so, yeah, from a, a rehab perspective, you certainly um, can often be hard on yourself. Um, and so, yeah, on, on the training program and making sure it's right. So, again, having those conversations is key. Uh, but moving on to this question, I suppose. Uh, look, uh, again, well-structured periodized plan, I think, is, is, is like you said, is the biggest thing. Um, having your plan A, B and C ready in terms of different athletes you're going to have, so different groupings and being out of group people. So having some simple, some simple screening tests that you're going to do that you believe in, you know that work, um, that are reliable and valid is probably a, a really important thing, things that are going to identify and help you sort of work out what, what program that, that a certain person is going to be on making sure that we have a good base of strength, of speed and power, um, and then conditioning on top of that. And I think it's probably probably in that order or it's probably, you know, your speed and power, your strength, and then your conditioning um, is probably the order that it, it would fit in from a general training sense. And uh, I think being adaptable um, is the biggest thing. Everyone is can be really good and I, I really enjoy it that that really gets my juices flowing at, at the end of the season or before the season ends starting to devise the plan for the next year and all the wonderful things you're going to do and at this period of time we're going to be peaking coming to finals and whatever else um and look it's probably an easy one to get sucked into working with youth kids um because everyone wants to everyone wants to win um but it's about probably just uh cooling your jets a bit and looking at the big picture and sort of working out okay well what what do we need to do? What, what how are we going to best set up this person, this athlete, this group for the future? Um, in a long term sense, what are the boxes that we need to tick? 
and how we go about doing that. That, for me, I think is the most important part. And I think, Chris, this is... um this is something that I'm quite passionate about. And in my line of work, we're working with a lot of different athletes in a lot of different sports. Um, I'm working with a tennis excellence program in Brisbane and they've just got all this new equipment. So thinking about obviously what you touched on and using the data for practical application. And for me, that's something that having to deal with that on a daily basis and changes with athletes and chatting to them, um, having that well-structured plan, but being able to be adaptable, which was your key word, I think is the way that I look at it, especially in my field and what I have access to. So leading on to this question, how does planning and preparing for the Lions differ with something like Queensland cricket for yourself? And because there's such different sports in terms of the physiological demands, like the structure of seasons and game lengths, what what's the key thing for you? Is it that adaptability that you talk about? Yeah, look, I think that's one aspect of it. Uh, I think for me, coming back, it was about getting an understanding of the game and the demands again, looking at what, what the numbers are and what data's out there in terms of your match output, your training output. Um, basically, as much information I could get, you know, fitness testing results, different times that guys are running, um, how that's changed, the strength measures that are available to you and what, what information you get on you you can have on your group, but also then the norms for that sport. So that's kind of a, a, a good step to say, well, are we, you know, are we leading the pack? Are we middle range or are we a long way off? And these are the areas then we need to focus on to actually catch up to, to what, what we need to be going. Um, I think cricket, to its credit, even though probably from, uh, you know, a spectator's perspective, it's actually still a very demanding sport. I think you look at the number of games they play in a season, backing up in short periods, they, and then the length of games and obviously the differences in um, the different formats um, from T20 to one day to, to four-day cricket. There's and, and also I think, you know, looking at the environment they play in and the conditions, very hot. So certainly as a sport, it required a good aerobic base, as does football, but they're probably things that you're touching on once you've got that good base of strength and speed. Um, I think cricket also needed uh, a good exposure to high-speed running, and, and AFL is probably similar in that nature. So I'll, I'll probably be fortunate there that, that I've um, worked hard on, on developing um, my, my coaching in terms of speed and, and, and mechanics involved in that in terms of um, acceleration and top speed running. Um, yeah, so I think they're both both sports always, any sport's going to be different, but they'll always have some level of athletic uh, similarity. Um, and it's just about working out the context and, and knowing, and I think listening to uh, Stu McMillan from Altus, and, and I'm a big fan of Altus as well, um, listening to them talk and that, talking about context and, and content, um, I think, as Stu sort of alludes to, the further away in a journey that someone is, the further away they are from a big professional, so the younger they are, say a 12-year-old athlete, well, the context then, you know, may not have as much impact as the content. So the having getting the right basics is is fundamental so from a football sense at the moment we're still for certain guys a long way away from actually being at the true performance level so we can we should be devoting our time focusing on the basics and nailing those basics in, in speed mechanics basics in change of direction in strength in air in conditioning um, and then as we move closer to performing at that top level well that's where the context probably comes more permanent and working on the actual specifics and, and, and the context of the game becomes most important. So I think that's uh, that that for me is probably the, the subtlety and the art of it a bit. Um, and you can it's easy to get sucked in as a young coach. It's easy to get sucked in and want to focus on the context too much. But I think you've, you've got to develop sound mechanics and good movers first before we can work on the sexy stuff. Yeah, and I, in terms of in terms of the running stuff around cricket, that's something that I absolutely love. And we had Josh Partridge, who has spent some time over in Altis and with guys like Stu McMillan over there and Dan Path, and just the the relationship that that has, even some of the top speed and linear mechanics that it has to even fast bowling, but the way that cricket's going with the shorter format, the ability to be able to change direction and move and, and be able to create force in a lot of different planes is something I'm quite passionate about. Um, I had a chat with um, Nathan Kiley from New South Wales from the pathways there. And, you know, he, he looks a lot of, 
a lot around that high speed mechanics and running mechanics and the importance of aspects such as you know the the ability to switch and the cross extensor reflex and i think that um, it's, it's really interesting hearing that as well and the, the way that cricket's going, that really makes me happy as well. And, you know, going going forward in that direction with cricket, I think that multifactorial approach that we talk is not just about, you know, working the gym, it's integrating that within your high-speed mechanics, your acceleration mechanics even. Um, and I think that's where it's just fitting in so nicely and I, I really like the way that cricket's going in terms of that in that sense. Yeah, look, I, I think in any sport like that, um, it's really about you. You got to try and engage with the sport. Um, you can't just sit back and, and just want to focus on what's going on in the gym, or what's going on in your conditioning session. Uh, what's going to happen in your warm up? As much as you can integrate stuff, but still have a basis of fundamental patterns, then I, then I think you're you're moving in the right direction, and you're going to get buy in from coaches and buy in from athletes. Uh, but yeah, and and then amongst that, the, the difficulty in someone like me, I'm, I'm probably not known for. I can be a serious guy at times, and not known for wanting to have lots of fun. Um, putting a spin and having an element of fun in there is certainly a difficulty for me. But it, it's it's the number one thing in terms of creating, particularly in a sport like cricket. Um, that was certainly an adjustment that I had to get used to. No fun, Chris. What are you talking about, mate? <laughs> Go on, Jack. I've trained you for too long. You know the answer to that. <laughs> nah, Chris, you're plenty of fun. Um, I guess one of the big topics um, in the cricket field at the moment, probably over the last 10 years, has been workload monitoring and how many balls should this kid bowl and how many balls should this person bowl and why are we keeping this person out because of bowling workloads and all that kind of stuff. And I guess that's one thing that you've had a little bit of experience in um, working with the fibers and also the balls and the pathways. Um, I guess I've done a little bit of research on this myself and there seems to be, the evidence seems to be quite inconclusive as to whether, um, you know, how many balls this person should bowl. Like some articles say, you know, you shouldn't be bowling more than 200 balls in a week where others say no more than 130. Like there's a lot of, you know, variance in the data. Um, Can you give us a bit of insight into the practical applications that you did at Queensland Cricket and, and how, People, like give people a bit more of an understanding of bowling workloads and, and how, how they work? Yeah, um, look, uh, for me, I, I think uh, I've probably never been a big fan of set, set like limitations. Everyone's going to have a slightly different ceiling. So, um, and, and look, not to say early on when, when, when things were evolving and I was starting out in cricket, you certainly try to stick to the guidelines because that was what was um, sort of being taught and getting pushed. Um, but from my end, I, I think it's about, uh, one, educating yourself, educating the players and the coaches, um, the club coaches so that you may not have direct involvement with, but trying to get them on board and parents um, about what what it looks like, um, you know, presenting them with some data with, okay, this is what elite performers at the top level have to withstand and do from a bowling workload perspective. Um, and then it, understanding that as a as an adolescent you're not probably at that level just yet you might think he's got the potential to do it and he has the ability to do it right now but I would say evidence and history probably tells us that we go down that route you're potentially going to you know you will sustain some injuries so um, and look injuries are going to happen um, and they're multifactorial but I think the big thing is trying to trying to develop and show a clear progression um, along the way where the steps that you're going to take to try and develop that, that person or that group, um, you know, bowling's a complex thing. We're talking about six to eight times body weight at, at delivery going through that front leg. Um, so it's a, it's a big stress on the body. Um, and that's, a, you know, the elite level they have, a, you know, elite junior level, sorry, they have, an, have a capacity to generate force because they can still bowl reasonably fast um, but they're still learning how to control and absorb that because you throw in that they're growing so we, we, we know there's some differences in coordination around that time so I think getting buy-in is probably the, the, the first thing that um, I we tried to do but also um, I think in general the big thing is you shouldn't be trying to act alone on it. I think it's a joint responsibility from the entire team if you're fortunate to be working in a setting where you've got the coach or a bowling coach, a physiotherapist, if there's a nutritionist involved, um, that, that's a big thing. I think 
and like I said, it, it's multifactorial in terms of you, you've got to develop and be developing a good level of strength, particularly glute strength, certainly important, but general lower body strength and core strength. Um, nutrition is a massive one and it's critical for bone health. So where we can providing um, some nutritional support, whether it be through education um, or if, if it's sort of having conversations with players around, you know, and, and observing their habits when you get to see them. Um, recovery is a massive thing. And like you said, um, Jack alluded to the monitoring side of things, not only the standard well-being monitoring um, and reporting, but also the actual monitoring of what's going on. Um, I think what we tried to do or by the end of things, and this was certainly um, across Australian cricket and certainly, um, and I think we were beneficiaries of New South Wales probably probably doing a lot of this stuff, was starting to look at it in terms of a, a bucket of balls that a player can have for a year um, and then that could, that could be broken down into different periods and weeks and whatever else. And so if you, if you look at um, what an elite performer was able to, bowl or needed to be able to bowl to perform and then breaking it down because I think often what's seen um, and some of the evidence that was presented to us at a, at a conference was that at under 17 level certainly the elite performers because they would play multiple championships in a year if you're good enough to play under 17s and then get picked up to play in under 19s championships um, and then all the club cricket and school cricket you were going to play your number of balls was probably close to the same now that uh, an elite performer that's probably been bowling at the top level for five plus years. And so it, it makes sense that they're probably not ready to do that because of the ability to control their body um, and have had that experience in terms of adapting and, 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 and refining their, um, their action over time. So, yeah, I think that that's one thing and then taking those steps to slowly progress. So, so one thing we tried to do was, okay, work out how many balls someone was potentially needing to bowl for the year, what's an, what's an appropriate, what did they bowl historically? So what did they bowl in the last year, two years, three years, if you've got the data, if that's available to you? Um, what do we feel is an appropriate increase the following year? Is it is it 10%, is it 15, is it 20, depending on the person and how many balls they bowled, um, how resilient they were, how strong they were, whether they were growing, all those things come into it. And so then you can start to build those steps and progressions and start to build a, a long-term plan as far as over a number of seasons, this is how we're going to get person from A to Z. Um, and, and and there's going to be changes. There's going to be things that pop up that, that limit someone in a season or, or they might be in a case where they might bowl a bit more, but at least having a, um, having a bit of a guide there and, and, a, and a relatively scientific guide, I suppose, um, an objective number that, that's there to help guide you to that and then being sensible with your progression, I think, is the big thing. Um, but, again, it comes down to conversations. Here's my plan. This is what we're trying to do. Is the athlete coping? You know, how are they feeling? What are they reporting? What is the coach observing? How's their technique look? Do they look fatigued or are they fresh? Um, what's our, if we have access to monitoring-based data, objective data, does that actually tell us, you know, are they coping with the loads? I think it's, it's, it's a really complex situation that requires um, a very probably, yeah, a complex answer, but a, a complex pathway um, that's not solely one person's responsibility. Um, but it's it's something that just it does take time and it, it requires a lot of buy-in. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. It's probably one of the most misunderstood topics in the, the cricketing populations. I get so many um, parent coaches coming up to me saying, you know, all oh, this bloody bowling workload stuff and whatnot. But I think the most important thing, and, and you really touched on this, is it's a multifactorial approach. There's, there's you know, your technique, there's, there's strength, there's... Um, the monitoring as well and all those things obviously play a really important role um, in the development of the, the lumbar stress fractures in the players and I think that's something that you know hopefully over the next few years people kind of understand a bit better. I must touch on though before we kind of move on to the next topic you, you, you mentioned about fast bowling and you're, you're well known in the Queensland circles for your, your net bowling and being a prestigious wicket taker. Um, can you talk us through your net bunnies so far please? No, look, I don't think uh, – I'm probably not willing to expose those people on air, Jack. They, uh, they, they, they've endured enough embarrassment um, for, for probably being bowled by my sub-90K an hour balls. So 
I think that's all the embarrassment I'll subject him to. <laughs> that's fair enough, mate. We'll, we'll leave that. We'll leave that for the off-air conversation. <laughs> Bunnies are. <laughs> Um, well, mate, we're, we're pretty much wrapped up here. We just got a couple more questions. Um, just, just firstly, it's been absolutely amazing just hearing this sort of, um, sort of information about long-term athletic development. I know Jack mentioned earlier, this is something that almost started PJ performance because we're so passionate about that, about the pathways and how we can help athletes. And obviously for us, it's about creating skills programs for athletes, but also having conversations such as this. So if young cricketers are listening, they can take things from this. And, you know, if young S&C coaches are listening to about, you know, oh, I want to find out a bit more about periodization and how that's going to help me, that they can take something from this. So that leads me to my last question. And I've had a few conversations with yourself and it's helped me a lot, even in my career, whether it's subconsciously or, you know, the way I go about things. So what advice would you give to young S&C coaches who, are, who have aspirations of getting to that top level or just being the best coach that they can be? Yeah, oh, look, I think it's a really a great question and um, it, it's coming at a, a very interesting time um, with with everything that's happening in the world at the moment with uh, with, with COVID. Um, obviously, there's going to be, yeah, potentially, potentially there, there could be changes to the sporting environment in terms of funding and positions that are available um, and people are going to probably have to show or, ch- or change their perception and their willingness to do things. I think the best advice and things I got as a young guy was to be willing to volunteer my time and not, uh, you know, not to feel like I need, not to feel like I had to get paid for every single thing I did. If something was important to you um, and you wanted to learn something then be prepared, you're going to have to sacrifice something for that. And that all comes down to circumstance. Like I'm not saying people should go out there and work for, uh, you know, 40 hours a week for free. That all comes down purely to your circumstance and what you're able to do. You know, are you able to commit a set amount of time to be able to do that? Um, that was certainly something that gave me a leg up in my career. Like we had a guy, I think his name's Peter Klein, who from the Tasmanian Institute of Sport. He came to UQ Sport when I was there and, and spoke. And that was one of his bits of advice was, you know, don't be afraid to go and volunteer your time, even though you might be getting paid now, if you really want to learn something. And so I took that advice on board and went to Queensland Cricket and said, hey, you know, I, I noticed you don't have anyone helping. Um, can I can I, can I I help? Can I keep coming? I'm keen to learn. Can I put out cones? Can I watch sessions? Can I help in the gym? Can I spot people? Can I put weights away? And that's where it kind of started for me in that sense. So I think um, being willing to give up your time and see every experience as an opportunity and try and look on the positive side of things, even right now, um, you know, yeah, sure. I've, I've been on stand down for a set period of time now and I've tried to use this opportunity to try and keep upskilling, do as much PD as I can, learn as much as I can in this time. While I may not actually be working as such, um, I'm still sort of trying to, sharpen my sword and, and learn as much as I can. So I think that's a, a big thing is doing as much as you can and, and seeing every every opportunity for what it is. It, it's an opportunity to show that you're, you're keen, you're passionate, you're willing, and you've got skills. I think that that's the important part. Um, another really good bit of advice I got was to do well in your, in your current job and, and treat it with the respect that it deserves um, before worrying about your next job. So really be concerned about your current role before you worry about your next, um, you know, got to show pride in what you do. And, and I think it's always been a big thing that I've, I've tried to do in, in what I do is show, show pride and passion and care for the really truly genuinely care for the people that you're working with and that are around you, not only players, but staff as well. Because I think that will get you further than worrying about what people think about you or what trying to impress other people, just show that you're genuinely interested in, in, in them and, and that you're genuinely interested in what, your purpose and as a team or a group or as an individual athlete, what they're trying to do. And I think lastly, don't be afraid to dream big is probably a good bit of advice. Um, If you've got a plan, you know, try and visualize that plan, write it down, draw it, however you need to visualize it, but have something that you want to work towards and don't be afraid for it to be a big goal and work hard to to try and do that and, and know that it might be take time. I think be patient, but you know, dream big and don't let people tell you otherwise. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for that. And I know Jack's going to take the piss out of me because I'll say this quite a bit, but absolute knowledge bombs, mate. And for me, the the advice has been um, definitely 
instrumental for me within my career and even around the the cricket academies and things that we did at Acceleration. But um, I know talking to Jack uh, previously about his experience of when he's been working with you, whether it's been as an athlete or as a coach as well. So just thank you very much for your time. Before we finish, uh, we have a segment at the end. Um, it's called Battle of the Brains, mate. So I'm going to pass you over to Jack. He's <laughs> questions for yourself, mate. Um, all I'll say is best of luck. <laughs> Alrighty, well, strap yourselves in because it's time for Battle of the Brains. Chris, we're about to stitch you up, mate, but I know you love your stats, so I've got a few stats for you. Um, But essentially what this is is we're going to ask you three questions. It's going to be an ABCD um, multi-choice question, and you just have to give me your answer, mate. They're going to be the first question is going to be the easiest, second medium level, and third is going to be the hardest. Um, can I phone a friend? <laughs> you phone myself, mate, but I won't be much help. <laughs> what about, is there a 50-50 option? Surely give me something. We'll, 50, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how, hard, how hard they are, Chris, after. <laughs> Fly through them, mate. All right, so question one. The Brisbane, how many titles has the Brisbane Heat BBL team won? Is it A, one, B, two, C, three, or D, four? And this is the women's BBL side. Uh, two. That is correct, Chris. Well, well done. done, Chris. One that from one, mate. A nice, easy start. All right. I remember when we were back at the Lions, you were quizzing me on who had played the most games um, or played in the most seasons. I can't remember at the Lions. But I'm going to come back with you at this one. Who is the oldest player on the Brisbane Lions list? Is it A, Grant Birchall, B, Daniel Rich, C, Steph Martin, or D, Dane Zorko? Uh, it would be C, Steph Martin. Chris, that is correct. <laughs> I've made these questions way too easy here. This, this third one, I think. I think i got to admit I, I got that one wrong, I think, in the workplace and someone corrected me. So it's, uh, yeah, learn from past mistakes. Mate, no phone call required then. Um, all right. We have questions about netball, considering you uh, have some interest in netball. But I think that I might have made this too easy too. We'll see. All right. In 2019, who was the Queensland Firebirds best and fairest player? Was it A, Gretel Tippett, C, Ramelda Aiken, C, Gemma Mimi, or D, Tara Hinchliffe? Did you say C twice then, Jack? Oh, D, D. Chris, you said (laughs) Um, I am going to say I think it was A, Gretel Tippett. Chris, that is correct. I've made these questions way too easy here. (laughs) Yeah, look, look, some of that was a bit of luck, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll have a chat behind the scenes, mate. Jack's uh, not in the best of books now, so we'll see how we go. Uh, All good. I just want to say thanks, boys, for uh, having me on. It's been a a real pleasure. Um, Hopefully people get something out of it, but certainly I'm not going to pretend that I know all the answers and and, and what I've said probably in there is just – you know, it, it, it's my views and 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 how I, I've been out of, out of form those views. But um, certainly, I've been fortunate to have a lot of teachings over the years from many great people, and I think uh, I hope hope people can can gain something from that. So, thanks very much, uh, Chris. Absolutely, and we really appreciate you coming on. Um, I think this is a really informative podcast for anybody out there, whether they be old or young. And um, yeah, we couldn't thank you enough for coming on. So, th- thanks for joining us. That's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Well, that wraps up episode number five of the PJ Performance Podcast with Chris Brennan. We hope you guys all thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a bit about long-term athlete development and how to work effectively in a high-performance environment. We look forward to joining you for another episode of the PJ Performance Podcast soon. <laughs>